All right, Revelation 6, verse 9. Uh, again, those listening, if you want to hear more, not just Revelation, but others, go to Patreon and find us there at Creation Instruction. So, uh, verse 9 says this of chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. So, just to refresh where we're coming off of here, we have seen the first four seals opened already. The white horse, uh, basically the Antichrist giving a uh, big given power. The red horse was, he goes out and makes war to conquer. The black horse, there was famine that came about as a result of this war. Uh, and then a pale horse, which brought disease, um, plague, things like that, which is also natural with war. So a, a pretty logical progression that takes place. Now the scene switches. Remember I said that in the patterns of sevens that we're going to see all throughout the book of Revelation, you're going to see the first four follow a theme, then the next two. Well, we've covered the horses, so the theme changes, and we're getting to this scene in heaven of what's going on up there. And what it is, is that there clearly have been believers who have been killed because of their testimony and because of the word of God. So not only are they you know, testifying to the truth, uh, probably what God has done for them, but also for the word of God. Now that can be taken as for the memra, the the literal flesh incarnate Jesus is the word of God but it can also just be using the word of God and I think when we evangelize that's one thing that I think we have lost in society in the churches is we feel that we can evangelize just by loving people that's not what it says here it's not not saying we're not supposed to love them but let me tell you the atheists love their friends too and they will show just as much love, give just as much support, help them roof their house, help them do all of these things just as much as a believer will. As a matter of fact, in some cases, I've seen unbelievers rally around one of their own that has gone through a tragedy in, in ways that sometimes even puts the church to shame. Without the Word of God... In the testimony of Jesus, it's, it's empty, ultimately. And we have to remember that, that we can't just love people to heaven. And it's just like I was telling you about that girl wearing that sign. I think too many people think, well, let's just go show her love, and that's going to be helping her. That doesn't help her. She needs to know it's wrong. So, anyway... Um, another thing is they did not die by defending their lives 
They died because of standing up for truth. You know, in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of people, and I'm not saying that you can't do this. I'm not saying that you even shouldn't do it. I think it's wise to be prepared, but at the same time, our hope is not in how much ammunition and guns we have. That's not what this is saying, that they died fighting for their lives, that they died fighting for... No, they died because they were simply standing up for truth. Yeah, yeah. So... Well, I think that these are people, that's a very good question. Are these people all throughout history, or is this a specific time period? I take this, and it could be both, but I take this as specifically those who have been going through this period of time. But I don't know. It could be all throughout history. It's a really good question. And I can't answer that fully. Um... I would say most people are going to say that these are those who, in this first part of the tribulation period, are being here. But, again, there's some problems with that. One of them being, this isn't God's wrath that has come on. And these horses, that's man's wrath. God's wrath is going to come in the trumpets. Okay, so when you're saying this period of time, you mean when the tribulation starts? From the white horse on, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But again, it could be throughout all time. It could be all the apostles from, you know, from the time, everybody who's been throughout history. Now, I'm just trying to kind of keep the theme of the context of Revelation. But again, I don't want you to think that it's not possibly all throughout time. Because throughout all of history, there certainly have been people who have died for that testimony. And what are they doing? Well, I think they would be also with them in some sense yeah so so i don't know is my final answer but i lean towards the idea that with the theme and the context of what we're reading that it's just those from the white horse on but i don't know um what's interesting as well uh romans tells us do not take revenge my friends but leave room for god's wrath for it is written it is mine to avenge i will repay says the lord now, in Romans, that's quoting, I think, Psalms, but it's quoting the Old Testament. And it's interesting that this can be kind of a touchy subject as well. These people are calling on the Lord to avenge their blood. They're not doing the avenging. And I know that I have seen in my lifetime a couple of kind of nationwide testimonies that have been just remarkable. Uh, one of them would be uh, the Holocaust survivor, uh, my goodness, Corey famous Corey Timbu. You know, that she would pray for forgiveness for her tormentors. Her, you know, the, you, you couldn't have a, a greater enemy. Jesus did the same. Stephen did the same. I even see Moses doing the same in some senses, Paul doing the same in some senses, when Moses was taken up on the mountain and the Israelites are abandoning God. God says, get away from them. I'm going to wipe them out. They've done nothing but complain and whine about Moses. If it was me, I'd have been, yeah, all right, God's going to avenge me. But instead he steps in and says, no, God, you know, don't, don't do that. 
wipe me out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul said the same thing. He says that I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own brothers, the people of Israel. And that's an attitude that I think we need to really be careful about, especially in the world we're living in now where we see among our own government the, the evil. I mean, downright evil. Not just wrong, but evil things that go on. And it's easy for me just to want to say, wipe them out. But we should have an attitude of love for them. Now, with that said, it's also okay in some senses to have an attitude of bring down the fire. That is, in essence, what is happening here. These people are up in heaven saying, Lord, not how long till you come back. How long till you avenge our blood? They are calling for justice. There's a fine line between those two things, justice and forgiveness. I don't know where that line is. Um, outside of, I think, it's clear that it is God who gets to decide that. We can call out for justice. And I think, indeed, we probably should call out for that to happen. But we should also have a heart for those lost people, too. So a very fine line. Um, with all this talk of Roe v. Wade, and you know, now it's, in some cases it's been easier for some people to get an abortion because they're, uh, you know, the devil rises up to fight against this. Is God going to avenge the blood? of all these babies that we have murdered, millions of babies throughout the last number of years? I think he is. God will avenge that. And I, uh, boy, names, everything's just coming hard to me here tonight, but um, a friend of mine, Operation Save America, Gib Killian walked with them. Flip Benham is the name I was trying to find. Flip Benham, they, would, they literally walked across America with donkeys and signs over the donkeys to, for a call of repentance and things like that. I mean, very weird. But they did that walking all the way across, stopping in every town they would come to, and he would go to the churches that were closest. If there was an abortion clinic in town, stop at the closest church and say, read out of Leviticus, where if there was innocent blood that was shed, you were supposed to see which town it was closest to, and that town would be held responsible. They were the ones that needed to go and deal with this. And so he would go to the closest church and hold them accountable. What are you doing with this abortion mill that's just you know three blocks from you or whatever the case might be? Because God is not going to turn a blind eye to the evils that are going on, whether it be the abortion or the evils that goes on in the government. He is going to avenge not just the murders, but all of the injustices that go on in this world. And what's interesting is that where these people are at, they are under the altar. This is where the blood of the sacrifices was poured out at the base of the altar. And this is where it is. Their blood was a sacrifice in a sense. They sacrificed themselves to the Lord. 
for the Lord, I should say. Now, I'm not putting that in, you know, the lines of forgiveness and whatnot, but a sacrificing of their lives. So, uh, we see that, you know, the blood being poured out in Leviticus 4, verse 7, as well as uh, Exodus chapter 29, verse 12. But in Romans, this is what it tells us. It says that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is our spiritual act of worship. What does that mean, to offer yourself as a sacrifice? Does it mean that you have to die? No. Maybe not like in the physical sense, but it maybe in the spiritual sense, yes. We die to self so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. I don't keep the Sabbath because the code, the law, says that I'm supposed to keep the Sabbath. I serve in the new way of the Spirit, so I keep the Sabbath because I have a desire to follow my Creator, my Savior, my friend. And that's the difference. That's the difference between, it's not now I serve in the new way of the Spirit, not like the law is gone. It's now I serve with the law being in my heart, and I'm now keeping the law, but with a different motivation. And that means that, yes, we sacrifice. We sacrifice a day out of our week. We sacrifice and say, no, I can't go do this. We sacrifice and say, no, I will not work here anymore. Or, no, I can't be a part of this. Or, you know, uh, yes, I'm going to get fired because we stand up for the word and the testimony that Jesus is Lord and that he has forgiven us. He has done it all. And so I don't think it's just a matter of dying. That's easy. To be killed for your faith is easy. To live while standing up for your faith, that's what's hard. I have thought many times, if the Lord comes back, it's like, do I even want to fight to save my life? Or do I just want to be as bold as I've ever been and go join these people here at the base of the altar? We often read this and we think, oh, persecution, oh, no, scary. But I think we've got the wrong attitude. These people, notice what they're doing. He remains, he says, he said to them that you should rest a little longer. That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing at all. And they're going to be rewarded. So this isn't torment, this isn't negative you have to see this in a positive light. And when you read the, the, all of Revelation, I think that is the case. So, don't forget that it seems to be God is the one that is allowing those who are doing the killing to have their sins piling up to the heavens to reach its full measure. That's what he did with the Amorites, if you recall, in Genesis 15, he says the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And so he was holding off judgment and justice on them until they became so wicked that there was no good left in them. And so God's patient with them. And we should be as well because 
I've seen people who were wicked and ungodly who now follow the Lord. And you go, wow, I would have never thought that they would have come to know the Lord. Yeah. So we need to be patient and pray for these people, but it's okay to pray for justice as well. Uh, I want to show you, this isn't unique either. Psalm 82 verse 1 says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Defending the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. So how long, it seems, is he going to judge unjustly? God never judges unjustly. He never shows partiality. He only shows love and patience. God cannot be unjust. He cannot be unloving. Those are things that he cannot do. People always say, you know, can God make a rock big enough that he can't pick up? Well, they want you to think that God can do everything. He can't. There are things God is incapable of doing, and that is to go against his nature. Therefore, if he cannot be unjust, any wrath that comes on this world, anything that happens, there is a good reason and it is just. When we see so-called innocent children that die in accidents or whatever, and we think, how could God, how can a loving God do such a thing? You have to realize we're in a fallen world and even that is just. And God in his mercy, I know, is doing what he's supposed to be doing and he allows those things to take place. But you can't blame God for the evils that go on in this world. Okay? It, it's sin in this world that causes those things, not God, sin. And we're all full of it. Psalm 94, verse 3, Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? In essence, that's basically what these people at the base of the altar are saying. How long, O Lord, are you going to allow this to happen? How long until you come and stop this evil? I know that that's a prayer in my heart constantly. And that is biblical. And it's okay to have those thoughts. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 8, For I the Lord love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Where Ezekiel 18.29, Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is not your ways that are not just? I was thinking about this verse driving home here from Houston. And I thought, it is amazing how we just throw around this what is just and what is unjust. And I thought, we are so good at justifying. Making what we do just. That if I want to buy something, I can justify it. If I want to, you know... Uh, speak ill of our leaders, I can justify it. I am so good at being unjust in my justifying. 
God cannot do that. And it says, is it not your ways that are not just? It says, my ways are just. And therefore, to accuse God of being unjust when someone dies, is taken away, or something happens to our own life, I know that there are many times that I have talked to new believers and I see trials and tribulations come into their life and I'm like, oh God, just give them a break. Let them, let them have a break here. And I have to think, God knows. I don't, I don't need to justify why or this should not happen. God knows. And if I truly believe He is who He says He is, then... I just have to trust him and glorify him through the process, even when it hurts. I've known many people who no longer follow the Lord because they didn't get what they wanted. Because they think it's their life and they feel justified in being angry with God. Guys, I'm telling you, you have never any reason to be justified to be angry at God. I get it. It's natural. It's going to, it, I'm sure we've all been there. You know, when I was in my real low time in high school, I was very angry at God. I was wrong, but I was angry with God. And so I'm not passing judgment on you who have had those moments of anger with God. I'm just saying it's not reality. It's not truth. He is just, and He is loving, and therefore whatever is going on in your life has a good purpose. Just like your child, when you spank him, they may be angry at you, but you know that there's a good reason for it. And maybe it's just that discipline that's going to produce fruit 10 years down the road. God knows, and we don't, so just trust Him. Genesis 9.5 says, Surely for your lifeblood... I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. When the Lord comes back and he starts killing people because he is demanding a reckoning because they have killed taking the lifeblood of man unjustly. Now, by the way, there's a difference between murder and killing. I should say murdered. Okay? <clears throat> Who can take the life of a killer? I think biblically, those who are in authority, those who are witnesses of it, they have the right to take the life of another man. And there is no uh, you know, uh, punishment for that. It's commanded. It is part of Torah that that happened. So capital punishment is biblical. Only unjustifiable killing is going to be avenged. So just know that there are different categories. But the point being is that these martyrs at the base of the altar are justified in their plea here. All they are doing is asking for God's Torah, His law, to be enforced. And let me tell you, God is enforcing Torah here. 
So if we want to make God this God of love who wouldn't send anybody to hell and who, you know, all of these kind of things, then you don't know the character and nature of God. Ray Comfort is always good about saying, you know, well, those people who come up on the streets and say, well, my God wouldn't send people to hell. It's like, well, try that in the courts of law. You, you know, your mother is raped, your girlfriend, your wife is raped, and they catch the rapist, and the judge says, well, I'm a loving judge, so I'm going to let you go. You'd be so angry at that judge because he was unjust and unloving. God has to punish sin. He has to bring vengeance on those who come against the Lord's anointed. You will not go unpunished without Christ. You will not go unpunished. As believers, there's forgiveness. But these are non-believers that are going to see the vengeance of God. And I definitely would not want to see that. Like when an ox would kill somebody, that ox was to be killed. So in Torah, that's what it describes, is that if you had animals that did harm, they were to be put down. So when your dog bites somebody, it is really following Torah to put that dog down because they're not supposed to continue. Yeah. All right, uh, verse... <coughs> 12, getting back to Revelation here. Just keep in mind now, the fifth seal is simply those who have loved the Lord, followed the Lord, are now dying, and their blood, they're crying out to the Lord. So what we see is it seems to be persecution. So if you would sum up the fifth seal, it is the persecuted saints. Now that's going to be important here as we get along. Uh, verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, Behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. <clears throat> so that Yellowstone <clears throat> volcano that everybody's worried about probably will happen someday along with much, much more. I can't imagine what this will do to the earth, but um, one would think that a sign such as this would cause even the most rabid atheist to go, okay, okay. Well, I used to think that about a lot of things before COVID. And now it's like, oh, there is no common sense logic reason that enters into people's decisions anymore. And so... As you're going to see coming up, the most rabid atheists will not repent even after seeing this. Instead, they will only curse God all the more. They'll find a way to blame God and call him unjust. And that's not a loving God. A loving God wouldn't do all this. Oh, yes, he would. I believe there is no such thing as an atheist. We, by our definition, call an atheist one who there is no God. But even atheists say they can believe in God or a God, which is so irrational and dumb. But the debate that I did with that uh, Freedom From Religion 
uh, Foundation president, I can't, Bob, I want to say Bob Barker, something Barker. Um, that was his thing, is that atheists, well, atheists can believe in God, you know. I agree with them, but by definition, it shouldn't happen. So an atheist, uh, Ray Comfort would say there is no such thing, because deep down, and I agree with him, everybody knows there is a God. This is what Romans tells us. It says that the wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth in their wickedness or by their wickedness. In other words, if you have to suppress the truth, you know the truth, you just have to suppress it. And that's what an atheist does. They know that there is a God, but they will say, nope, nope, don't believe in him, don't believe in him. That's why every time I meet an unbeliever, uh, I love to challenge them. Somebody brought this up many years ago, and I thought, that is so good. When I run into the atheist, I say, do me a favor. You don't believe in God, so it doesn't make any difference to you, but why don't you go and pray to the God of the Bible every day for a month that he brings trial and tragedy and disaster into your life? See what he does. Now, if you're really an atheist, it shouldn't bother you one bit. Go ahead and go do this. Pray for it every day. I leave them with that challenge. They know there's a God. They just suppress it. So, um, this great earthquake, it, it's singular. I don't know if that's just going to be one that's going to cause all kinds of things in certain areas. The sun and moon being darkened, we don't know what that means. But notice it says it's as sackcloth. It becomes like blood. It's not that the moon is blood, but it turns red. And so when we have a lot of smoke in the air, that happens. So some have said that maybe these great earthquakes, fires going on all over the place is going to put so much in the atmosphere that the sun doesn't shine. Just like when we have volcanoes, uh, when Mount St. Helens erupted in May 18th of 1980, we see that, uh, I think it was Yakima, Washington at noon, the streetlights came on. Okay, it was, it was dark in places. The moon, when you have all of that, appears very red. And so it's not saying that the sun is gone or anything like that necessarily, but it could be just as a result of what goes on here. Uh, a few weeks ago I was talking about David Wilkerson's vision that he had where thousands of fires were burning in New York City as well as other cities throughout the country. Maybe it could be something like that. I'm not saying that is it. I'm just saying it makes it understandable and possible. Like I said a couple weeks ago as well, one thing that I've learned is I don't think this is as clear-cut and as you know obvious necessarily as when you read it all condensed. If we have seen the white horse and all of that unleashed, if again it, it isn't that obvious, but yet it's like, wow, I could see that being something there. And it might be the same way. They're just going to say, hey, we've been telling you that this Yellowstone, we've been telling you this is going to happen forever. We've been telling you that there's going to be meteorites that are going to come hitting the earth. They've already got an explanation for what the Bible says is supposed to happen. It will be natural. And they will justify it. Yep, climate change. Yeah, right. <laughs> so... Um, there are seven phenomena that take place here. The earthquake, the sun goes black, the moon red, 
Those seem to be pretty, you could see all of those being connected. The ones that are a little strange here, though, are the heavens roll up. The stars fall from the sky. The mountains are removed, and we see basically in the next verses there's going to be global, global panic. The heavens rolling up like a scroll. I don't know. I don't know if that is literally the sky rolling up. I don't know how that can happen. The stars falling from the sky. We have to realize we are in such a fine-tuned universe that that will disrupt everything. Um, some think that these stars, since we saw earlier that he held the seven stars in his hand and we see that those are the angels of the churches, that the stars falling from the sky are not literal stars, but angels that are cast down. Possibly. Um, there's some interesting ideas. I just see that keeping the context of what we're seeing, earthquake, sun, moon, that it seems to be physical. And the context would suggest that literally stars are going to fall from the sky. Meteorites, maybe. Has this happened in the past? Possibly. To some extent at Noah's flood. Why do we have only, pretty much almost all of the craters are on the, this side of the moon. The other side of the moon is fairly smooth. The craters are on our side. Why is that? Well, yeah, well, yeah. The interesting thing about that is because of the rotation of everything, we only get to see that one side. We never get to see the back side of the moon outside of going to space. Noah's flood may answer some of that. There are theories that are out there. The hydroplate theory, uh, do a Google search for Brian Nickel, hydroplate theory, and watch some of his videos. There's like long, but just do it in pieces. But fascinating. You want to see how the Grand Canyon formed? But it also could explain how those are on the moon. When you have the earth splitting at the time of Noah's flood, just these small cracks, these fissures that open up, the waters underneath are, just by doing math, science now, the pressures shoot up at subsonic speeds that would take rock and everything with it and could have ejected those things to the moon. Therefore, a lot of those craters could have come from earth rocks, ultimately. Now, you go watch this. I'm not going to get into that. That would be a whole other presentation on hydroplate theory. But it's fascinating, and it's very, very, very scientific. Okay? It is, yep. Yeah, the Grand Canyon stuff is just... You will see how the Grand Canyon formed. I am convinced that that's pretty much what it was, and... There's so much geological evidence to show this. It's just the flood gives you the mechanism to do that is all. So, um, so I'm going to just kind of put this on hold until it happens to say what this is. I don't know. But I think you're going to know. It's not the only time we see this in Scripture either. Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and 32, it says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth 
blood and fire and billows of smoke. Okay, that smoke could explain, as, like I said, the sun going dark and the moon red. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So I don't think it literally means blood, as I said before, even though if you take and isolate this verse, take it in context with the other verses, it's like blood. And it goes on, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, um, did I finish that before the, I want to hit this, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I want you to note that because, note the timing. These things are going to happen before the Lord comes back. And this is not going to just be here, but it's everywhere. When does the Lord come back? In every case that we're going to see it, whether it be Matthew, whether it be Revelation, Joel, and other places, you will see that it's after the moon and sun are affected. Then the Lord comes back. So it will not happen before that. So this idea, oh, the Lord could come back. I grew up thinking this. The Lord could come back anytime. Boom, now. Nope. You know, this imminent return that you don't. He will not return until after this happens. And there have to be at least close to a dozen verses that will show you this. Okay? So just highlight that for now. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, Mount Zion is where the temple is at in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So the deliverance comes from Jerusalem. Now, one of the things that we're going to talk about later, but I want you to kind of just plant it, that seed in your mind for now, is this. The timeline that I see happening here in Revelation is that we're going to see God raising a banner, and God is going to, possibly, this is the rapture. Everybody believes in a rapture. The two things that they don't know is what does it really look like, and when does it happen? The when it happens, we'll talk about later. But one of the things the Jews see is that in the New Testament, everything we see in the New has to have something in the Old that backs it up. If it doesn't back it up, you're making a brand new doctrine out of something in the New Testament. The example that I use a lot, I've told it this before, but in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, if the dead are not raised, then why are some being baptized for the dead? And I say, are we supposed to baptize the dead? 1 Corinthians says, if the dead are not raised, why are some being baptized for the dead? So you read the commentaries and it says that people, Paul's probably quoting a pagan ritual. Why would Paul, that'd be like me, to support something I'm trying to teach you, quote something from the Satanic Bible. He wouldn't do that. He's not quoting pagan rituals. He's quoting Numbers chapter 19, which says that any time that you uh, came in contact with a dead body, you were to go through a ritual baptism, a mikvah. So what he's saying, Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 is, if the dead are not raised, if the resurrection is not true, why did you just touch that dead body to prepare it for the resurrection as they did with everybody that died. As we saw, even they did with Jesus' body. 
anointing it, putting uh, spices, wrapping it up. If the dead aren't raised, why did you become unclean and have to go through this mikvah for that? I can tell you that Joseph of Arimathea and those people who put Jesus' body in the grave went through a baptism after they did that. So here now we see a number, or in 1 Corinthians 15, that isn't a new doctrine that we come about. We see that doctrine explained from the Old Testament. Well, the same should be true for the rapture. When we talk about the rapture, we hear 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, or is it 2 Thessalonians 4? Now I'm forgetting. I think it's 2 Thessalonians 4. But the point being is where do we get in the Old Testament this view of the rapture that we have talked about, that we've grown up to believe? Nowhere. The only places you get it, and you'll hear people saying, well, Noah was taken out. While God destroyed the earth, he was taken out. He was put on the boat. Lot was taken out of the city before fire and brimstone came out. So they were spared. I think those are pictures of the rapture, yes. But they weren't taken to heaven. You know, Noah gets off the boat and he gets drunk right away. Lot gets drunk right away. They're depressed. This wasn't being raptured into glory. Instead, a Jewish view of the rapture, I can show you 50 plus verses in the Old Testament. And what it says is there will be a banner raised, and that banner seems to be Jesus. And God is going to take people to Zion, to Jerusalem. I think that this first rapture is God calling people to Jerusalem because this is where deliverance comes from. And what happens is he brings them to Jerusalem. He becomes a hoopah, a protection over his people there, just like he did in the wilderness at the Exodus for the Israelites, protecting them. And then we see the Armageddon battle is going to take place and all the nations come up against Jerusalem and guess what? God fights for them, right? And we're spared. We're protected. In essence, we'll talk more about that later, but I want to bring it up to plant that seed in your head because I think that's what's being talked about here. Just the believers, but I think all believers, yes. Yep. I think every believer. Doesn't say. What I see, yeah, what I see in, in the Bible in the Old Testament is God says he'll raise a banner. We see he's going to make a pathway through the uh, Euphrates River. We see all of these things happening that are described in the Old Testament as, as it seems like we're going to get there. But I don't know, maybe some will be like the Philip, you know, the Ethiopian there, uh, when he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. There, you're there. But I don't see that. What I see is more a banner being raised. That's Jesus. It's seen everywhere and everybody goes there. Just plant that seed. We'll talk more about that later. But I just want it planted for now. Zechariah 14, 4 through 8. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. Again, the, the, the epicenter for all of this is Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. 
You will flee by my mountain, mountain valley, for it will extend to Azazel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be no light, no cold or frost. It'll be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. And on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. Is this heaven? No. This is not the new Jerusalem yet. This has something to do with future. It has not happened yet. Which is another interesting thing I was thinking about this week. I see all these people wanting to quote the, the Old Testament when it suits their desires. We'll quote this. Hey, this is going to happen someday. Hey, you know, the old Zechariah said this. But yet, if we quote it in reference to obedience, oh, no, no, we're free. We're free. Nope, that's, that's null and void. That's the Old Covenant. Uh, no, this is Old Testament, Old Covenant, talking about how it's going to be fulfilled under the new. And so let's be consistent. You either believe it or you don't. You're either going to take it all or you got to get rid of it all. One or the other, but you can't pick and choose and cherry pick the parts you like and don't like. And anyway, I'll leave it at that. So um, point being here, old and new, we're seeing the same things happening here. Isaiah 13, see the day of the Lord is coming in a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger. So this is going to happen when the wrath of God is coming. Not, not yet, not when man's wrath was being poured out. To make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Notice just the sinners, not the ungodly. The stars of heaven and their constellation will not show their light. Just the sinners are destroyed. Okay. Did I say not the... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not the not godly. The Thank you. Yes. <laughs> not the godly. Glad you caught that. I didn't even catch it. Um, the, right the rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. So this prayer that they've been praying for, it's now here described as being answered. He's going to punish them for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and I will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make a man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. So what we seem to be seeing here in the sixth seal is God's anger is coming. I think the first four seals are man's wrath. And now we're seeing God is going to start showing his signs and he's preparing. And then we're going to be leading into the trumpets on this next couple of chapters, really chapter 8. And it is God's wrath at that point. Haggai 2, 6 and 7, The Lord Almighty says, In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come. That's Jesus. 
the desired of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. So, once the heavens are shaken, look up. That's the key right there. That's what we're seeing here in the sixth seal. Right after that, the Lord's coming. And I could show you many more verses. Let's just look at two more. Isaiah 34, All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved in the sky, rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. So it is time. Now, I don't know if this for it is a year, meaning it's going to last a year, or if it's like this marks the year. Matthew 24, we're going to see this in more detail, but immediately after the distress of those days, what are the distress of those days? The first four seals. I'll prove this in a moment. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. Again, all of these seem to be physical, not spiritual. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So what's happening? After the sun is darkened and the moon is darkened, then we see, just like Joel said, before the great and coming day of the Lord, these things are going to happen. Here it says, after it happens, now we see the Lord comes back. That's the key. I believe... This is going to be, at this point, the rapture. What is that rapture, as I said, is going to be different. But I think that once you get that sixth seal, we're going to be taken and called to Jerusalem in some way, shape, or form. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's the way I'm understanding it in my studies. Okay? To Jerusalem at that point. I'm going to stop. I'll take you too far down the road otherwise. Um, When we read in Isaiah 34, it's interesting that this also is talking about the destruction of Edom. And so some people will say that this never happened in full to Edom. Therefore, this is all spiritual and symbolic. Instead, I think it's what I've said many times is that it's, these are all things in the past that, foretell or are symbolic of what's supposed to happen in the end. And I'm going to show you the preterist view tonight if I, have, if I get time to get there tonight. So of their interpretation of what this was back throughout history. Um, likewise, this Matthew verse by the preterist view, which again, the preterist view is saying that all of Revelation is, it's already happened in the past, pretty much. Uh, outside of the Lord coming back, all these things have happened in the past. Some say it was fulfilled by 70 A.D. We'll discuss that. But uh, I do not subscribe to that. I think it's the same thing, that these things were foreshadowing the ultimate fulfillment, but not a fulfillment of it. All right, verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath 
has come. In other words, it's now coming. Those first four, or really five seals, I should say, that wasn't God's wrath. That was man's wrath on man. But now, this is marking God's wrath coming. Okay? And that's what you're going to see in these trumpets that will come after this. And who is able to stand? Romans 14 says, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. When he comes back, notice that there are, just like there were seven things that came, there are seven people affected that are listed here. All right? We see seven classes of people, kings, rulers, generals, wealthy, the elite, the common slaves, the common free. And so these are the people that are affected everybody. And notice there is no atheist. Save us from him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. They know. They all know. They will not be able to suppress that truth any longer because the truth is exposed. I want you to just know this verse and find comfort in it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says, We are not under God's wrath. It says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God did not appoint us, his followers, the saints, to wrath, but rather to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. What verse was that again? It is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. And so... That is so important because when we're reading about this day of God's wrath, again, I've been there. I know my wife has been there. Many of you have been there. You don't like studying Revelation because it's scary and you don't want to read about all these bad things. I want you to understand, from here on out, you are not under the wrath of God at all. I think you're protected in, many, in most all of those ways. And you're going to see that what's happening is to the ungodly because it's God's wrath. And that's not for you. So find comfort in that. Isaiah 2 verse 10. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. These people are hiding in caves, hoping that they can hide from God. They can't. You cannot hide from God. He fills the universe. Matthew 24, 16, Jesus gave this warning, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. We see even Hosea wrote, then, those, or then they will say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills, fall on us. So the same type of thing, that means that when you look at these verses, you're understanding this is talking about an end time thing. There may have been wars that happened and battles that People did the same type of thing, but for the most part, it seems like this is talking about end times. Outside of, well, in Matthew is too, but for a little different context there in Matthew 24. So in essence, this is what you've seen so far with these seals. We already kind of reviewed at the beginning, white horse is the Antichrist, allowed to begin his evil, then war with the red horse, famine with the black horse, perhaps the supply chain, 
coming apart. Uh, then the pale horse, sword, famine, and plague, wild beasts bring more destruction and death. Then we see tonight the saints in heaven are persecuted. And then the sun, moon, and stars are darkened and fall from the sky. Men hide. The seventh seal isn't anything except for the beginning of the trumpets. When the seventh seal is going to be opened, you're seeing that the seven angels are preparing the seven trumpets. That's it. All right? So, in essence, you're done with the seals. What I want to do, though, is show you that this is not new, and you want to understand, if you want to read Revelation, but in a condensed version, read Matthew chapter 24. And you got it right there. Everything that we have talked about with these sealed judgments is right there in Matthew chapter 24. So let's look at this together. You might want to turn there because I think this is so important. It gives you a little bit of more context and understanding of it, I think. In verse 3 it says, Now as he sat, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? We all want to know when the end of the world's coming. They, they did too. So they asked the question, and Jesus is now going to give them their answer. As we read through this, I want you to understand that verses uh, 3 through verse 28, by a preterist view, is going to say all happened by 70 A.D. And then verses 29 to the end is going to be when the Lord comes back. I do not agree with that. I do believe it foreshadowed it, but it is not the fulfillment of it. I will, if, as I said, if we have time, I put it on your sheet that I handed out, but I also put it up here tonight, show you how that works. Verse 4, though. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. I would call that an antichrist. Right? That's seal number one, the, the white horse, right? Yeah. The white horse is the antichrist. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. What was the red horse? Wars. See that you are not troubled. Don't forget that. He's saying, don't be troubled. These things have to happen. It's okay. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. In other words, oh, the world is coming to an end. Oh, no. No, it's not. There's still more. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines. That's what the fourth horse was, or third horse, I mean, the black horse. And pestilences and earthquakes in various places. Pestilences, plural. We had disease, and, you know, famine was also mentioned with the last one, just building on it. Plagues. So, you're seeing the exact same order in earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Just like I kept saying, these first four seem to be following a theme. That is the beginning of sorrows. So if we have seen the white horse with COVID and all of that thing happening, if we're seeing that starting to unroll, guys, this is just the beginning. 
you are going to have a little more time yet. There's still stuff that's got to go down. It goes on, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. What was the fifth seal? Persecution. Same order. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Why are they killed? For the word of their testimony and the word of God. Verse 10, And then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound. What is lawlessness? Sin is lawlessness. It's breaking the law. Well, where in the New Testament do we get the law then? Do you think he's talking about just loving your neighbor? No. Lawlessness is going to abound. Literally, if you would translate that Greek to the Hebrew, Torahlessness will abound. It goes on. The love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay, so... He's just kind of continuing here, talking about what's going on, right? No change in theme. Verse 15, therefore. So that one word, some translations I think say, so. It implies that you're, you've been reviewing what I've already talked about, but now I'm going to kind of move forward. It says, therefore, so. I'm, I'm going to review when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, again, in the Old Testament that you need to take literally, you can't cherry pick here. When you see that standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. That is going back to, therefore, so, let me review. Remember that white horse, the Antichrist, the one who's going to deceive many? When you see him setting up an abomination that causes desolation, then you need to understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You need to, you need to flee. You need to hide. Isaiah says this. Um, I just can't get it started, but it says, Go hide yourself in your homes. Lock the doors behind you until his wrath has passed. Do it for just a little while. I think in essence that's what this is saying here. Okay, it says then the Lord is going to come and the dead is or the earth is going to uh, God is going to punish all the the people on the earth for the innocent blood that they shed and those type of things. It says let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. In other words, this is going to be fast. When that happens, it's quick. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. A Sabbath that does not matter anymore, the church will tell us. Well, then why is Jesus saying pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath? Your Sabbath? The one that you decide is Sabbath? Or the Sabbath of the Bible? Okay. It goes on. 
Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Let me just ask you, as long as we're here, do you think the Holocaust is the worst thing that ever happened in the world or ever will be? Do you think that the Holocaust was, was not as bad as when Jerusalem was sacked in 70 AD by the Romans? No, there was way more Jews that were killed in the Holocaust than in 70 AD. Therefore, this is not the 70 AD destruction. And therefore, the Holocaust wasn't it. Therefore, this is going to be worse than the Holocaust. This is, this is bad. A tribulation that unequals anything that has ever been throughout history. Worse than the Crusades. Any of that. And unless those days were shortened... No flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. For the sake, he's going to be watching out for you even then. Now, I want you to understand again, the preterist view is going to be, they're, they're going to quote Josephus, his historical records of what happened when in 70 AD the Romans came in and conquered Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of Jews died. They were slaughtered. Interestingly, we do know that there were Messianic believers. Remember, the church was always Jewish until the Gentiles took it over. They were, they were under control, but because of a rebellion, then they sent their armies to just destroy it. And so what we see is that there were Jews who believed in Jesus, and they believed the words of Jesus here in Matthew 24. And there were literally thousands and thousands of, of Christians, Jewish believers, who fled to Judea out of Jerusalem because of this verse, and they were spared. Because they listened to the words of God. And so when the Jews came, Messianic believers were spared because they believed this. They saw the Romans coming and they took off. Um, Josephus records tragedies. They record, as you're going to see later on in the book of Revelation, 100-pound hailstones, but that's in the trumpets. And he says that the Romans took catapults and they threw 100-pound stones into the city. You're going to read later in Revelation about the horse's blood going up to the bridle horse's blood, blood going up to the horse's bridle. Josephus records that there was so much bloodshed that blood would roll down the streets and put out small fires, so much of it. Again, a far cry from a horse's bridle. But those are the type of things that the preterists are going to use to say, see, it happened, when in fact, no, that's just a small fulfillment of the final fulfillment that will take place in the end times. One night in our post-Bible study, we were doing the calculations of a 200 million man army that's talked about in Revelation. How much blood can you get? And I don't remember the exact number. Noah, do you remember? But uh, it would reach a horse's bridle. It could fill a valley to a horse's bridle with the amount of blood 
that each person has. I think that that could literally be true. Not just a figurative thing. Not just a little bit running down the streets putting out a small little fire. Okay? Um, we'll maybe talk more about some of those historic things later. But that's the, an example of what preterists use. I get it. That's why I say I, do, I am a preterist in some ways. I believe some of those things. That those are, it's just not the final fulfillment, just a little bit of a fulfillment. That's why I don't, there's amillennial aspects that are true. There's preterists, there, there are aspects that are true. Futurist aspects that are true. All of it have some truth to it. And that's why I hate these labels of saying, oh, you're, you're a millennialist. You're a preterist. You're a... No, I just want to take the Bible, but I see many small fulfillments leading up to the final. Um, verse 23, then, if anyone says to you, okay, notice here again, then, if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or there, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Here's that word, therefore, again. So he has reviewed those other ones. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, don't go out. Look, he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. You're not going to have to wonder, oh, is that Jesus? There will be no question about it. There's going to be no debating and trying to figure it out. You will know. Verse 29, so, so far we've seen the first five seals, ending with persecution and then a review of those five seals. Then he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the heaven. That is the sixth seal. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then... Then, after that, basically, what's going to happen? The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Remember, when does the Lord come back? After the sun is darkened. Falls right in line with that, doesn't it? A sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Does that mean the Lord's coming back, putting his feet on the earth? Or is this the banner that is going to be raised? Go do a concordant search for banner throughout the Old Testament and see how many times it says that there will be a banner raised and that banner is what causes people to go to Jerusalem. They're going to go to Zion. I think this is when that first rapture would take place. Okay, Not going to heaven, but going to Jerusalem. <coughs> it says, Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. What comes after the sixth seal? The seventh seal. What happens in the seventh seal? The seven angels are preparing to go sound their trumpets. We're falling straight in line. And they will gather together his elect. Oh, that sounds like a gathering together. The banner has been seen. Where does he take them, though? To Jerusalem. From the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So, you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. 
Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So this generation will not pass away. Some people thought, well, that meant then, in 70 AD, those that were alive, it all happened in that generation. So by 70 AD, it was fulfilled. However, the Lord didn't come back. He didn't gather his elect. Instead, I think he's saying this. This generation, in other words, the generation I'm talking about who sees these things, it'll all happen in one generation's time. They will not pass away without all of these things being fulfilled. It will not be a thousand years for all of this to take place. It won't even be a hundred years. It will all happen in a generation's time. Daniel 12 says, There will be time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. This is what Daniel is talking about here. He seems to be saying that this time of distress is not 70 AD. So when you see the abomination spoken of by the prophet Daniel, he's saying in connection with that, a time of distress, multitudes, a resurrection takes place. So uh, I just cannot see that this is a fulfillment in 70 AD. Uh, the preterist view of this abomination that causes desolation Again, depending on what camp you're in, those that believe it was all happened by 70 AD say it was Titus coming in. Titus did the exact same thing that Antiochus did before. Antiochus came in and defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. Titus did the exact same thing. Again, a pattern for shadowing. Others say it's the mosque that's there today the, on the Dome of the Rock. That those who say that uh, this part of Revelation is being fulfilled throughout the last 2,000 years. Rather than just up to 70 AD, some take it to 2,000 years. We'll say that the Dome of the Rock is the, the abomination that causes desolation. Okay, So just to give you some insight into that. But again, I think it's more of a Midrashic thought is where the truth lies. So uh, in closing out here, just so that you can see this pattern again. The first four follow a theme, the horses. Then you follow another. The next two follow another theme. And then there's going to be a commercial break, always between the sixth and the seventh, whether it be the seals, the trumpets, or the vials. Since there's going to be a commercial break, we can expect that when we continue reading, you're not going to be reading about the seventh seal yet. And you don't. Chapter 7 is a commercial break before you get to the seventh seal. All right, for at least for the most of seven. So that pattern is what you're going to see throughout all of it. I am not going to take the time. I, I ran out of time to give you the preterist view. But you know what? I, I think I can do it in two minutes because it is on this sheet. You can go, but those watching can maybe take more time to re read this. But here's basically the seals from one of the, the camps of the preterist. The white horse um, was 96 to 180 AD. 
There were five righteous or good Roman emperors. Uh, and then Domitian is killed in 96 AD. There's Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, and Antonius Pius. And so they'll go through some of the details of the things that they do and so on. But they see these righteous or good Roman uh, rulers as the white horse being given power and authority. The red horse, from 180 to 284 A.D., there are 80 emperors that are ruling in 90 years. It's just a time of war. They can't get anything together. Sometimes you've got three rulers at the same time. There's just It's a constant state of civil war. The black horse is famine. Uh, one of the Roman emperors there uh, of the red horse emptied the state treasury of bread to purchase favor. He basically took out the uh, uh, reserves and the later emperors couldn't ever get it restored. So it caused high inflation, high taxes, and poverty resulted. Sounds kind familiar. of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, we just gave, what, 30 million barrels? We gave a million barrels of our oil to a Chinese company run by China that uh, Hunter Biden happens to own. Just so strange. But we took those that reserve to help lower the costs of fuel, right? Yeah, but we have drained our oil reserves in the last couple of months. Okay, will we? And now we're out begging because we don't have, right? No, we do. We just have to go drill. Yeah, yeah, we do. We just have to go drill. But same type of thing that happens. So the whole point in being bringing that up right now is not to be political as much as to show you patterns. Okay, throughout history we have these patterns that are there. Pale horse, death by famine, sword, and plague from 250 to 300 A.D. Even the Encyclopedia Britannica says of Rome. The empire, uh, war, plague, and famine had thinned the population and crippled the resource of the provinces. So they'll use the encyclopedias that happen to use those words and say, look, all the war, famine throughout this period, there you have the, the pale horse. <coughs> Persecuted saints. Nero had already been persecuting the Christians from 64 to 68 A.D., uh, Domitian was a second wave of persecution in the late or mid-90s. And there was a third wave under Trajan uh, when Ignatius was martyred, a fourth wave when Polycarp was killed, a fifth wave here, um, then a sixth one under Maximinus, seventh uh, was worse yet by Decius. Christianity was almost wiped out under him. There was an eighth wave, a ninth wave, and a tenth wave under Diocletian. And so they talk about these ten waves of persecution that we talked about in uh, the first, before we even got to the seals under the churches. But now they attach that to the seals of this fifth persecuted horse and say, here are these ten waves of persecution. But again, while this may be the worst persecution at that time, um, it certainly isn't beyond what has ever been in the world. Six seal, the great earthquake, they see, uh, and the sun and the moon and the stars, they see that these are leaders and people, not physical things, but rather spiritual. And they'll use things like Joseph seeing the sun, moon, and stars and whatnot. There are biblical precedences to show the sun, moon, and stars being angels or people. 
And so they will attach that. Um, every island being removed also happens. So the fourth beast of Daniel is Rome in his vision. So they see Rome. Therefore, all of this happens under Roman rule. Makes sense. The small stone that grew and that toppled the feet in Daniel's vision is Jesus. So when Jesus came, he was the stone hewn out of the mountain, toppled the feet and the statue that comes down. I think there's a picture of that. Again, I'm not going to say that, oh, that's wrong, but I don't think it's a final fulfillment of it. Because everything else Daniel talks about is end times, so that doesn't completely fit. I think rather when the Lord comes back, he is going to destroy still a Roman kingdom. We are built on Rome even to this day. Babylon and Rome, it's, it's who we are. That's our culture that we keep trying to get away from. The Christmas and the Easter and all of that, we get a lot of that from Roman and Babylonian culture. So we're still, in a sense, that way. Uh, as I said, they define the angels as, uh, or the stars as angels. The earthquake is not a literal earthquake, but a shaking of the political and cultural realms of the world. And so all these problems that are going on when Rome is falling apart is the earthquake. Uh, the sun and moon, uh, really the Roman Empire, and the sun and moon being two, the Roman Empire was divided into two, dimming or weakening the empire. Uh, Diocletian here in the seventh seal was officially called the Invincible Sun. His birthday was on December 25th. Just so happens when Christmas is today. He ruled in East and he couldn't control the West, so he appointed another emperor to rule in Milan jointly with him. So they became two. Both held the title of Augustus and appointed Caesars under them. Both Augustus's lost power and Caesars came to throne, the throne. Um, and Galerius and Constantius... They persecuted Christians. Constantius protected them in the western uh, area, but uh, soon after his son, that changes. Constantine replaces him. Eventually, Maxentius takes over for Galerius. I'm just making up the pronunciation, pronunciations of these names. Uh, so through a turn of events, Constantine and Maxentius battle for Constantinople. Um, Const uh, Constantine has a vision where there's a cross in the sky, and he hears this message that says, by this sign you will conquer. And so he had 40,000 men and uh, 170,000, let's see, I don't know what I, 170,000 plus 18,000 horses. Uh, but yet Constantine still wins against these incredible odds. Well, he says it was because of this vision that he had seeing this sign in the sky. So, um, the sun and moon darkened. It says there was still Licentius or Licinius ruling now in the east, but eventually Constantine overcame him in 324 AD and became the sole emperor. So the dual empire of the sun and moon were eclipsed when Constantine came to power. Okay. There's all kinds of details that you can read in this history. This is a nutshell version of it. The stars fall. Um, all the evils up to this point are being put down as the age of Constantine is good and godly and Christianity thrives. And so paganism is falling under Constantine. That's the stars falling from the sky. Sky rolling up is Constantine's vision of the sky being split 
by a shining cross. So his vision was the sky rolling up. I find it a stretch to say that, okay, the sky rolling up is a vision of a man. And especially one who I think was a compromiser. That even his coins of his day were still minted saying, uh, the unconquerable sun god Mithras on them. And so I see Constantine personally, while he maybe did believe in the Lord and followed the Lord, that he at the very minimum was uh, plural in the sense that he also tolerated the paganism because he allowed the pagans to do their thing. He Christianized Christianity, getting the support of both sides. And so at the very least, he was a Christian that was uh, watered down. So even though he did take some stands on things. So uh, wrapping up, in 331, all the pagan temples that had not been converted to churches were destroyed. So again, the stars falling from the sky. His nephew Julian came to the throne but went back to the Greek paganism and closed all churches. He tried to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem to show the prophecy of Jesus was wrong. But an earthquake and fire on the temple mount stopped the building. You can go read about this in history. This is fascinating. We talked about it when we were discussing how the Temple Mount, God has not allowed that third temple to be rebuilt. Why? Because we're the temple. He has not allowed it to be rebuilt. I think he will at the end times for the purpose of this abomination. But it was during these days, he was actually going to have the temple rebuilt on the mountain. And there were gas explosions on the temple mount. When it talks about this fire, other uh, records talk about explosions of fire. And they were, we don't know. It seemed to be miraculous that put a stop to the building of the temple under him. So really kind of crazy. Therefore, from 313 to 361, the emperors could not even restore paganism, even though they tried. And... Therefore, again, the stars are falling from the heavens. Um, The islands and the mountains are being removed. Uh, The islands are viewed as the uttermost ends of the world. And they'll use scripture verses to show that, which is true. The only places the word islands are seen in the Old Testament are shown there. So it was interpreted as kings imposing tribute to the ends of the world. That they lost their power as well. Uh, hiding from the wrath of the Lamb, Constantine took the banner of the cross in the name of Jesus to conquer. So when Constantine was coming, people would hide from him. Why? Because he is bearing the cross. So rather than hiding from the Lamb, they're hiding from Constantine. But anyway, that's kind of a preterist idea. So you can see how you can understand where they can fit the puzzle pieces in, but as a cohesive part it doesn't make sense there's too many inconsistencies to make it the final fulfillment we'll pray lord thank you again for your word and thank you for calling us your own that we are children of god saints the elect and because of that lord we know that we are not appointed to wrath but we are appointed to salvation through faith in christ jesus may that truth cause us to just be excited motivated and may you come quickly lord we do ask that you return and that you bring justice to this earth and that you put down the evils but in the meantime use us to let your truth go forth and that we would be willing to die for the word of our testimony and because of the word of god the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world in the name of jesus yeshua we pray amen
So a 10 mile area, six feet deep, is 200 million men worth of blood. So it could be.